My name is Ellis White. For those of you who don't know me, I'm a, a pastoral intern here, and I'm, I'm not from around these parts originally. Um, if you haven't already guessed, I'm from England, and many of you have been, have been praying for my wife and I as we've been going through this process of seeking to change our visa status, and I wanted to give you a little update on that. We've got some good news and some bad news. The good news is we're still here. Um, <laughs> The, the not-so-good news is we're still waiting. Um, we, we haven't heard anything, so uh, please keep praying. If you've been praying, thank you so much for doing that. As I was preparing for this message, I was reflecting a little on our visa status. We're actually here on missionary visas. We are, my wife, my wife Rachel, and I are missionaries to Gig Harbor, Washington. <laughs> Pretty cool, huh? And it's... You know, it's kind of, kind of a funny thing, really, unless you think we're missionaries from the British crown seeking to bring sovereign rule back to this part of the world. Um, no, it's kind of a funny thing because my wife and I thought when, when we were kind of first getting to know one another, when we first got married, God, God was going to send us to do mission work somewhere. And we honestly thought it would be some country that, you know, really needs missionaries, okay? Yeah, like somewhere in Africa or, or something like that. But God sent us to be missionaries to Gig Harbor, Washington. And the amazing thing is that Gig Harbor, Washington, the United States, needs Jesus just as much as any other country in this world. And it is a privilege to be here. But times have changed in this country. You know, even even if America was a Christian nation once, things look a little bit different now than they did before. There are less and less people who are living lives according to traditional Christian moral values. This week on my my Facebook feed, a a quote popped up from a church leader named Ed Stetzer. And it was a quote from a blog that he wrote on the day after the last presidential election. And he said this, we must face the reality that Christians may be on the losing side of the culture war. While this certainly does not mean we should stop legal or political efforts completely, it does mean that we should begin thinking about what it looks like to be the church in a post-culture war era. Now, whether you agree with Ed Stetzer or not, I know that I hear stories all the time from people in this congregation of, of kids and grandkids who are walking away from Jesus, who are not living their lives according to traditional Christian morality, of people living with partners, of people having children outside of marriage, of people smoking pot, especially now it's legal, of people coming out as being homosexual. And maybe it's not just kids and grandkids. I, I hear stories of relatives. I hear stories of co-workers, of neighbors, of people that you go to school with. Every day we are interacting with people who reject Christian moral values. But yet, Jesus calls us to make disciples of all peoples. As his followers, that is what he calls us to do, to make disciples of all peoples. Not just the people in the church. Not just the people who lead outwardly moral lives. Not just people who already know and love Jesus. Jesus calls us to make disciples of all peoples. We are called to all peoples 
Because God loves all people, no matter where they're at. So my question for this morning that I'm hoping to tackle with you is how then should we make disciples of those people who refuse to live moral lives? And I'm going to suggest that we learn from the master disciple maker himself, Jesus. We've been going through for over two months now the four gospel accounts of Jesus' life. We've called it the 90-day challenge. We've been reading through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and now we find ourselves in John. And we've been learning all about who Jesus is and how he makes disciples. Now, many of you have been reading along. Um, if, If you haven't, that's okay. If you've fallen behind, that's okay too. Tomorrow, we start with John chapter 10. Pick up a Bible, read John 10 tomorrow, and we'd read along with us one chapter every day, and in 12 days we'll have completed our journey. I know that for me, I need someone to hold me accountable, so I've, I've asked someone, I've said to them, can you, can you make sure that you check in with me if, uh, that, that I'm doing this reading? So I send them an email every day saying, These, this is my thoughts, this is who, what I learned about Jesus, this is what I learned about disciple making. Maybe if you're struggling to, to keep up, maybe you could ask someone to help you in this process, to to help keep you accountable. But as we've been doing this, we've also been preaching through these texts on Sunday mornings. And in the last few weeks, we've been considering how Jesus made disciples in particular circumstances, in in particular uh, parts of life. Two weeks ago, we learned how Jesus made disciples in the ordinary things, in the everyday stories about lost coins and lost sheep and lost kids. Last week, we learned about how Jesus made disciples even in the awful things, in betrayal, in denial, in death. And this morning, we're going to hear about how Jesus makes disciples in the sinful things, how he makes disciples of those people who the Bible might call, or or, or the culture at the time the Bible was written, might call sinners. And so, Looking back over the text that we read this week, the seven chapters that we read together, there are, there are a couple of stories that stood out to me that spoke specifically to this issue, but there's one that I want to uh, focus in on this morning, and it's a story about a woman who met Jesus at a well. And the early church, when they were hearing the word of God, they didn't all have Bibles like we do today. And so they listen to someone tell them the word of God. And I think when we listen to the word of God rather than read it, we engage with it in a different way. And so I'm going to ask you this morning to to close your Bibles. We're not going to put it on the screens. Because most of you have read it. Because this week we we read this story. If you haven't, it's in John chapter 4 and you can go and read it later on today. But I'm going to tell you this story. And as, as I do that, I want you to imagine what it would have been like. I want you to as, as you're doing that, maybe, maybe for some of you, you need to close your eyes to do that. Maybe for some of you, you don't want to close your eyes because you'll fall asleep. Um, but, but as you do that, as you imagine this happening, this meeting between Jesus and this woman, I want you to ask yourself the question, how did Jesus interact with this woman who was leading an immoral life? How did Jesus interact with her? So, this is the story from God's Word. Jesus had to pass through Samaria, and he came to a well in in the heat of the day. And a woman from Samaria came to draw water at this well. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone into the city to, to buy food. She said to him, how is it that you, 
a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria. For Jews had no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it was that was asking you for a drink, you would have asked him for a drink, and he would have given you living water. She said to him, But you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where are you going to get this living water from? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He, he gave us this well. He, he drank from it himself, his, his sons and his livestock too. Jesus said to her, Whoever drinks from the water of this well will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never thirst again. The water that I will give him will become a spring of living water, welling up and overflowing into everlasting life. She said to him, Give me this water that I may never thirst again and not have to come and draw water from this well. And Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. She said to him, I have no husband. He said, It's true what you say, you have no husband. You've had five husbands, and the woman you're living, the man you're living with now is not your husband. So it's true what you say. She said to him, Sir, I perceive you are a prophet. So tell me this. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that Jerusalem is the only place people ought to worship God. Right? He said, Believe me, woman, a time is coming when we will neither worship the Father on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You worship what you don't know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming, and and it is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is desiring to, to call such a people to himself. For God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said to him, when Messiah comes, Messiah is another word for Christ. She said, when Messiah comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. This is the story from God's word. So what did you notice about how Jesus interacted with this woman? I find it fascinating. You know, he calls her out for the life that she's living. But he doesn't condemn her. He doesn't say, get away from me. He doesn't say, clean up your act, sort your life out. In fact, in another story that we read this week of a woman caught in adultery, Jesus literally says to her, I do not condemn you either. The woman at the well is a serial adulterer. She's had five husbands. She's she's living with a man right now who is not her husband. And yet, Jesus doesn't condemn her. He doesn't tell her to clean up her act. He doesn't tell her to get a move on and start acting the right way. Yet he clearly implies that he disagrees with her actions. 
He tells her the plain truth about her dating and marriage history. And this is interesting to me because it's so different from how Jesus interacts with his followers when they sin. Think back to some of the stories that we've read over the past few weeks. When Peter pulled Jesus aside after Jesus had predicted that he was going to be rejected, suffer, and die. And Peter pulls him aside and says, hey Jesus, you know that like rejection, suffering, and death stuff? That's, that's not how this thing goes down. What did Jesus say to Peter? Well, he turned away from him and he said, get behind me, Satan. Wow, that's pretty condemnatory. Or another time, when the disciples were trying to heal, cast out a demon out of a young boy, and, and Jesus came along and he finds out that they can't do it. Do you remember what he says? He says, oh, faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long do I have to bear with you? That's not kind of nice. <laughs> it's pretty harsh. Or this week, we read in John chapter 6, Jesus calling Judas, the disciple who had gone to betray him, Jesus calling him a devil. When Jesus' followers sin, he calls them out in a way that he doesn't seem to do with those who don't follow God. So why is this? Well, I think the key to understanding this comes in 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 another story that we read this week, a story about a man named Nicodemus. He was a a well-respected religious leader, and, and he came to Jesus because he wanted to know a little bit more. He wasn't ready to follow Jesus, but he wanted to know some more. And Jesus said something to him that I think gives us a clue to why Jesus acts differently with these two groups of people. Jesus said to him, I tell you, unless a person is born again, they cannot see the kingdom of God. Unless a person is born again, born from above, they cannot see, they cannot enter God's kingdom, they cannot be a part of Jesus' kingdom. And I think this gives us a clue. Because in this statement, Jesus is drawing a line in the sand, so to speak. He is saying that in this world, there are two types of people. There are those people who have not been born again, and there are those people who have been born again. In other words, there are those people who are spiritually dead and there are those people who are spiritually alive in God's kingdom, in Christ. There are two types of people, those who are spiritually dead and those who are spiritually alive. As I was preparing for this uh, message, I got a text message from my dad who was, who was visiting his mom who lives in Ireland. I have Irish grandparents, so St. Paddy's Day this week was a good day for me. Um, and my grand's an amazing woman. She's in her 80s. She lives by herself on this tiny little farm in the middle of the mountains in Ireland. She runs the whole farm by herself. No help. Incredible woman. Um, he texted me to say that the day before he'd arrived, um, my grand's dog uh, had run away. And when he arrived, he went out to look for her. Sadly, he found her, and she was dead. He brought her back to the house, and he knew the next thing he had to do was to to dig a grave and to bury her. Not only because, um, for my gran, this was one of her close companions, because she doesn't live with anyone, um, but also because after a while, dead things start to smell. And if you don't get rid of that, that smell kind of hangs around right? And it's not just dead animals that smell. 
dead people smell too. We're going to read about the story of Lazarus on Tuesday this week. He, he stunk. That was one of the reasons they told Jesus, don't roll back the stone on the tomb because he's going to stink. He's been dead four days. You see, dead animals and dead people smell. They stink. And I believe this is the reason why Jesus does not condemn the woman at the well or the woman caught in adultery. Because Jesus knows that spiritually they are dead. And because they are spiritually dead, why should he expect their lives not to stink? I mean, that's what dead things do. They stink. We shouldn't expect anything different. Jesus doesn't need to tell a spiritually dead person that their life stinks. They know. They can smell it. And they know everyone else around them can smell it too because they keep being rejected and cast aside by people. So what does a dead person need? Think back to the beginning of the conversation that Jesus had with this woman at the well. He started by talking about ordinary things, about water. He tells the woman that if she never wants to thirst again, that if she wants life, that she needs living water that only he can give her. He knows that she's at the well in the heat of the day, rather than in the cooler part of the day, in the morning or in the evening. She's there in the heat of the day because she is shunned by her community, rejected by them. He knows that she knows her life stinks and that she knows that everyone else knows that her life stinks. And he knows that she needs something more than just behavior modification for her to experience life. She needs living water welling up to life. And the only place that she can find that is Jesus. I was chatting to a man this week, and he was telling me about his story when he was younger in his life, when he had young kids. He was addicted to drugs and alcohol. He He really regrets this portion of his life. There were huge chunks where he was missing from his kids' lives. There were times when he would wake up in places that he had no idea where he was because the night before, he drunk himself into oblivion. But this man had a a radical encounter with Jesus. Jesus transformed his life. He made him realize that what he was seeking in that drugs and that alcohol could only be found in Jesus. And as a result, he now experiences a fullness of life that he did not get from those things. See, Jesus can give living water. He's the only one who can give life. And this week, as we've been reading, it's not the only time we've read Jesus claim to give life, is it, in that story with the woman at the well? Pastor Megan earlier read to you a section from Jesus after he'd fed the 5,000, saying, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never be hungry again. Whoever believes in me will never thirst again. And as we continue to read this week, we're going to see it again and again. Jesus is the one who brings life. Tomorrow, we're going to read Jesus say, I have come that you may have life and life to the full. On Tuesday, we're going to read Jesus say, I am the resurrection and the life. And at the end of this week, we're going to read Jesus say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus 
is making a strong point here. What spiritually dead people need is life. And that life is found in him. They don't need to be told your life stinks. You better clean up your act. They can smell it. And no matter how much perfume they put on it, that smell keeps coming back. Their actions are not the problem. They are the symptoms. They don't need behavior modification. They need life transformation. And that comes in Jesus Christ alone. So what does this mean for those of us who follow Jesus? If Jesus calls us to make disciples of all peoples, including those spiritually dead people who who live immoral lives, what what does that look like? Well, and I tell you two stories, one from my own life and one from the life of a a, a woman in this congregation that I hope is just going to show you what that might look like. When I was in in college, I played on a rugby team that was full of spiritually dead people. In fact, out of 25 or so people on the team, I was the only one who knew Jesus. And I don't know if you've ever met a rugby player who doesn't know Jesus, but uh, talk about a bunch of thirsty men. Uh, These guys could drink. For me, I loved playing rugby, but I knew it wasn't just about playing the game. That Part of being on that team was being a part of that team, being friends with these people, being in their lives, getting to know them, getting to build relationships with them, and getting to share Jesus with them. And so I, was, I felt called into this culture of drinking and drunkenness all around me, but I knew that I was called not to get drunk. And so... I had to walk this fine line between being a part of this culture of drinking whilst abstaining from the drunkenness surrounding me. And it was hard. But the opportunities that it provided me to speak into their lives were incredible. I remember one time walking to practice with this big, ugly Yorkshireman. And I was a freshman at the time, and he, you know, he, was, he was older, and I, it was a little bit scary. He was like, uh, Ellis, why don't you drink? For those of you who didn't understand that, he asked me why I didn't drink. <laughs> um, <clears throat> and it gave me the opportunity to say to him, hey, look, you know, I did drink. I, I drank a lot. But what I found was every time I'd do it, I, I would still be thirsty. It wouldn't satisfy. What I was looking for, it wouldn't satisfy. I wanted more. And then I realized that what I was looking for was found in Jesus. That he alone can satisfy. I remember another time I was sharing a room with someone. We were uh, on a trip together as a team. We were actually up at Vancouver Island. And I had brought this book with me to read. It was about God's view of sexuality. And I'd left it on my bedside table. I came to bed one night and I went to go and grab the book and it wasn't there. So I turned to my roommate and I said, hey, uh, you don't have any idea where I might have left my book, do you? And he kind of, you know, looked sheepishly and, and went, uh, so I, I might have taken it. Um, I wanted to read it to find out what you guys believe about sex. I was like, great. He was like, you can have it back. You know, I don't need to keep reading it. I was like, no, you keep it. You read it. And he did. And we had these conversations about how the way that he was trying to live his life, satisfy his desire for intimacy, 
going from girl to girl to girl was not working. That he needed something deeper to satisfy him. And I got to tell him, that's Jesus. That's what you need. You see, if I hadn't chosen to live life amongst these people and live it in a way that represented Jesus, that that loved them like Jesus loves them, that didn't condemn them for their actions, then I would not have had the opportunity to have these conversations. We're called to share our lives with those who are spiritually dead, to bring Jesus to them, to show them his love, not to condemn them for their sin. I mean, why should we expect them to act differently? Here's another story. There's a lady in our congregation who is involved in a, in a ministry reaching out to women in the sex industry. It's incredible to hear her heart for these lost women. She's desperate to see lives transformed, but she knows that the only way that that is going to happen is through an encounter with Jesus. So she goes into these clubs where these girls work and, and distributes gifts to them. She, she seeks to uh, develop friendships with them and, and get to know them. She tries to love them like Jesus would. She told me one time about this woman who she'd seen month after month as she was going into the clubs, and this woman had always stayed away from her. It seemed like she didn't want to have anything to do with her. And then one day, she got a call from this woman. This woman had her, had her number because it was on a card in one of the gift bags. And the woman called her and said, I know that I've never spoken to you, but I've seen you come in month after month after month. And I want to say thank you, because I'm done with this. I've given my life to Jesus, and I'm getting out of here. And I want to thank you for the way you loved us girls. There was another time she came to work, uh, came, came, to the, came to the club, and there were another group of Christians there. They were standing outside, and they had big banners with signs on them. And as she walked in, she felt really sad and angry. And as she spoke to the girls that evening, she said to them, look, I believe that if Jesus was here, he would not be outside telling you that you're a sinner and you're going to hell. That he would be here with you talking to you and telling you how much he loves you, how you are his child, how he has created you, and how he wants to be in relationship with you. This ministry is really hard she spends a lot of time crying over these women's lives because despite all that she does, sometimes it doesn't make any difference whatsoever. As I was preparing for this message, she got news that one of the women that she developed a close friendship with had been murdered by her boyfriend. People of God, time is short. People are perishing. People need life. People need Jesus. And I don't know who it is that that you are called to, but I know that we are called to make disciples of all people. All peoples. And that includes those who seem far away from God, who are living lives that shun morality. We are called to them. And I don't know if it means being called to that particular industry. Maybe it doesn't. Maybe it means being called to love your kids and your grandkids in a way that shows them the love of Jesus. Maybe it means being called to your sports team, to your classmates. Maybe it means being called to the people you work with, being called to your neighbors. I don't know who it is, but God has called us out of our comfort zone. He has called us to go into Samaria. He has called us to be amongst those people who reject him, who push him away. 
And he has called us to do that because he loves those people and he wants us to love them too with the love of Jesus. And when we do so, when we bring Jesus to them rather than condemnation, when we bring Jesus, Jesus brings life. Jesus brings dead things to life. He is the resurrection and the life. Many people will never read a gospel account of Jesus' life. We'll have read all four in 12 days' time. But many people will never read one. The only gospel account that they will read is the gospel account of your life. You are Christ's ambassadors sent into this world to bring his fragrance in amongst the stink. That is our call as the church. And it is a challenging, challenging call. But one that I think we're up for by the power of the Spirit living within us. Let's pray. Jesus, this is a hard message to be called outside of our comfort zones, to be called to people who are, seem far away from you. But God, I ask that you would give us courage. God, would you fill us with your Spirit? Would you send your followers out that they may be Jesus to those people, that they may bring your love. Would we minister your love into the lives of those who are lost, who are hurting, who are dying, God? Would we bring your love into a dying and hurting world, I pray. Give us courage by your Spirit. And as I pray this morning, I recognize that there may be some people sitting here today who would self-identify as being one of those spiritually dead people who would say, you know what, actually, everything that you've said, that's, that's the story of my life. That's what my life is like. It stinks. I know it stinks. And I know that everyone else knows it stinks. People keep pushing me away. And I don't want it to be that way anymore. If you're sitting here and that's you this morning, I want to tell you that Jesus has life for you. There is life in the person of Jesus. He can bring your dead spirituality to life. He can make you new. He can satisfy you. He is the bread of life. If you come to him, you will never hunger again. If you drink from him, you will never thirst again. And so I want to place before you, if you are here this morning, and that is you, and you, you know that you need life, but you don't have it, and you want it. If you want that life this morning, I want to ask you with, with every eye closed and every head bowed, I want to ask you to raise your hands because I want to pray for you this morning. If that's you, thank you. I see those hands. Thank you. Okay, I want to pray with you this morning because I see you up there as well because Jesus has life. And so I pray, Jesus, for these men and women who are seated here, who have raised their hands in faith, in faith in you, in faith in what you have done, that you would come and you would change their lives. Would you come, send your spirit to live inside them, transform them, God, set them free, wash them clean, make them new, bring them to life. God, may they be born again by the spirit. God, we pray for a transformation in their lives, and we pray that it would be something that glorifies your name, that people hear about, that makes many more people come to know you and come to have their lives transformed too. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. I'm going to invite our, our prayer team to come forward. If you raise your hand, 
I want to ask, can you grab a, a blue card from the pew in front of you? Write down your name, write down that I raised my hand. And you can, you can leave that right on the seat where you are, or you can come forward to one of our prayer team or one of our pastors. Let them know that you, pray, that, that you raised your hand, because we would love to pray with you. We would love to, to walk with you. We would love to help you with what might be next in your journey. We want to celebrate with you about the new life that there is in Jesus. But followers of Jesus, we, we have this challenging call before us. And it would be easy to walk out of here through what is colloquially known as the doors of amnesia and forget all about it. But my prayer is that we don't. Because there is a dying and hurting world out there who needs the love of Jesus, who needs the transformation that he can bring. And we are called to be the bringers of Christ into the dark places of this world. 